Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is a show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's show, we're talking to Tom Butterworth. He is the MD of the early stage practice at Silicon Valley Bank. But before that, hiya, Jack. Hello, David. We are recording on location. I know, we're recording around the corner from my house today. Is that exciting for you? Yeah. Have you had a nice day? Yeah, yeah. thanks. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, um, I'm on my week off in between jobs at the moment, so I've been doing a bit of running. Yeah, preparation for... Uh, for the Hackney Half. Preparation for the Hackney Half indeed, yeah. So go over to our Just Giving page ASAP uh, and just basically, yeah, chuck us all your money. Mm. Um, so I did six and a half miles today, did five miles Saturday. Yeah. So obviously at Wembley on Sunday. Oh, it's been a great week. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I what used to be an unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> You're not unemployed, you do have a job mm, to go mm, to. Mm, mm. I do, I do. And many people think you get paid for this podcast, which is kind of amusing. That is quite funny actually, yeah. <laughs> I don't, not, not yet, not until, you know, Bezos listens and realises that he needs to hire us, or, you know. Oh, listens to the time that you've talked about his dick pics. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. I'm sure he'd appreciate me talking about his dick pics. Willie. Yeah. Willie. <laughs> oh, no. What were we doing on Monday? One of the scariest things in my life, actually. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, we were chosen as part of a focus group by Yoda, which is a company who we've had on the show before. Ben Shout Fork. Out ben. Yeah, Ben Fork is their founder. Uh, so, basically... Yoda allow you to, well, no, hang on, that's wrong. They don't allow you to submit subject access requests, basically using GDPR to your advantage. But what they do is once you've made that request, they make sense of the data for you. So as part of this focus group uh, and to celebrate a year of GDPR, we submitted about 50 subject access requests to Google, Facebook, uh, the police, Netflix. NHS. Yeah, loads. Everyone, uh, or banks, um, including all of my internet browsing history ever. Jesus And decided to give that information to the BBC for BBC Click. Because that's sensible. Nothing bad can come of this. I mean, for the sake of our 15 minutes on 10, we're giving up an awful lot of our privacy. Oh, well, you know, why not? You know, we're desperate for fame. So, no, no in all seriousness, what it was, we got we got there and Ben had composed this ridiculously incredible email. Um, basically, it was about sort of borderline 300 words and all we had to do was copy and paste it and BCC in all the email addresses that Ben had sort of fought to, to find. Because even as he was trying to find the DPO email addresses and things like that, he struggled to find how to get in touch to request your data, which just was the first sort of hurdle. hiccup. Yeah, yeah, hurdle, if you will. So then we, um, we all sat there and uh, started emailing various companies, right? Yep. So um, and I just wanted to draw the listeners' attention to three or four that I, I sent out. So um, like I say, email was very, very well written by, by Ben. Netflix, one of the first people to get back to me, thanked me for my inquiry, uh, told me that I'd reached an automated mailbox led me to their netflix.com slash privacy link and said that they do not respond to general customer service or other types of inquiries through their DPO privacy email address. And this was a common theme, Dave. A lot of uh, people came back immediately and just led me to their privacy page. Yeah. Which is fine, but that's not what I asked. Even the responses that I got that that were fairly kind of succinct and 
not just an automated reply. So I got one back from Rightmove. Same. Yeah, I got Same. a personal response from yep. Rightmove. Hello, Dave. Yeah. Thank you for your email. If there is a reason which has prompted your subject access request, so immediately the company, yeah, 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 yeah. oh shit, because yeah, 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 I think yeah. this is an interesting thing, right? So few people have actually gone ahead and, 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 and requested their data from, from companies that when they get one, they're probably going, Christ, why? Alarm bells. Do you want to know something really, really funny? Go on. So right move, the only personable non-automated email. Was, was yours from Connie? Yeah. Oh, Connie, yeah. it was yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, Really embarrassing for me. Um, she's had a look uh, into this info for me and she's unable to find any information under the email address that I emailed her from. Because <laughs> my Rightmove account is on an older email address. So I must say that even though I ballsed up, the, the readiness and willingness is there from, from Rightmove, which, let's be honest, Dave, an estate agency based company, uh, ready and willing to help. Yeah. I think we've. Uh, we well, they, 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 they have confirmed that they have some data. Um, below is a summary of the information we hold, uh, which is associated with you, which is a Rightmove account, contains email address, property addresses, and full name. If you would like to see a full copy of the data, we will require some form of ID. Well, fair right. enough. So I also got an ID request from, it was from one of the ones that Ben recommended. It was, um, he'd found a load of ad tech agencies that, like MailChimp and things like that. And I also, I, I, they emailed me asking for ID, and I emailed them back saying, why do you need my ID? And they, well, no, yeah, it makes sense, well, right? Well, does it? Wait, you, you could, of course, but private personal data. Just anyone emailing in, going, "I want, I want information." I'm Jack Pierce. I'm, I'm pleased. Definitely. I just, I, I just wanted to draw attention to uh, Mailchimp. Yeah, um, I've, I, I've had some responses there. I've had you had to confirm two different email addresses. Uh, no, two different access things. Yes. Anyway, but then this is such a bad piece to do for the podcast. But they and they've only got forty-eight back. hours to do it. But look at the email back once you do that. I'm scrolling. I'm still scrolling. Oh my I'm God. I'm still scrolling. I'm still scrolling. And then we're there. There we go. So that's what we're up to. Uh, in 30 days, all of this information will be back and um, it will be in the hands of people who can make sense of it, which for both of us is terrifying. And if any of it's interesting, we might make it onto TV. For <laughs> all the wrong reasons. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right, so I think we should get onto Tom's interview. Yeah. Uh, as I said, Tom Butterworth, he is uh, MD of the early stage practice at Silicon Valley Bank. Stay tuned, myself and Jack will have some thoughts and then we've got some news. So today we're talking to Tom Butterworth. Tom, you're the MD of the early stage practice here at Silicon Valley Bank. How are you? Very good, thank you. You said you were feeling a bit hoarse. A little bit, yeah. It yeah? Is. I'm naturally kind of a baritone voice anyway, so apologies to any of the listeners. <laughs> I have to listen to a low voice for a afternoon or morning. Well, it is, it is Monday, so, you know. What is the early stage practice and who are SVB, I guess? Because whilst we've had Silicon Valley Bank on the, on the podcast before, new listeners might not be aware of that. Sure. So I'll start with, with Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank or SVB is a commercial bank focused on working with high growth innovation businesses and the funds that fund them. So mm-hmm. founded 30 odd years ago in Silicon Valley, hence the name. And the kind of two key builds to the business. One is working with high growth innovation businesses, and that's everything from you know one extreme, you know, e-commerce apps all the way through to you know pretty deep tech, life sciences, etc. And we work with companies from early stage all the way through to large, private and public. And when we say work with, we're providing the commercial banking that you can get from any high street banks, but also some pretty unique ways of uh, lending and providing non-dilutive capital to those companies. And then the other part of the business, which um, you know is a really significant, important part of the business for lots of different uh, reasons, 
is that we actually have a banker of choice for venture capital funds. So we work with about 3,000 funds globally. So we bank and lend to the VCs as well. So that gives us quite a, a unique overview of the ecosystem because we're looking at the source of capital, but also the, the, the companies where that money's going to. I suppose in your role then with the early stage practice, those more unique modes of, of banking would be the ones that often are more employed than maybe the enterprise clients or not? Yeah, so I think at an early stage, what we're looking for is we're trying to find companies that have certain validation points. So, you know, if you're a founder and you have, you know, £10,000 of your savings and, you know, you're going to develop something in your spare time over several years, you know, we're probably not the right bank for you. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with what you're doing. It's a really important part of the ecosystem. But one of our key criteria is actually, are you the type of company that we can add value to? So that goes to, you know, the banking services. So providing really hands-on support on that side, but also, you know, introductions, network, opening our network, companies are expanding to the US, expanding to China. So really looking for certain validation points of early stage companies where they can actually tap into that value add is, is kind of one of the key criteria that we, that we have. And then at early stage, we take the companies from that point all the way through to series A. Mm-hmm. Um, and then post series A, we have a, a venture and growth team where providing the debt solutions is probably more relevant part of that business. And then we have a large corporate, so for the kind of profitable and listed businesses. So early stage, all the way through to large private and public, where that, that kind of biggest segment of the market, which in UK terms, we have about a thousand clients in early stage right now. Mm-hmm. And I think the book here is about two and a half thousand clients in total. So, you know, circa 50%, which is what you'd expect. So as MD of that of that practice, looking after around a thousand clients, what are the main inbox challenges that your clients and you are facing in this first part of 2019? The challenge, I don't think it's unique to 2019. I think the challenges remain the same for our clients. So mm. there's obviously something on the horizon that begins with B, but I don't particularly want to talk too much about, <laughs> but happy to. Um, access to talent has always been one challenge. So yeah. we try and be helpful around that by being part of the ecosystem and creating an environment where there's access to unique types of talent, access to people who normally wouldn't maybe have access to the innovation ecosystem, um, that kind of stuff. So, you know, funding, clients will come to us and say, you know, how can you help with our funding? And whilst we won't invest in them directly, because that's not what we do, we do work with a lot of the VCs so we can help with, you know, here's the type of investors that you should be going speaking to or where it's appropriate. And if a company is actually at the right stage and we know that the investor is going to be interested, we can make that one-to-one introduction and we, we do do that. One thing that I've often heard kind of levelled at uh, the startup scene is that it could be more aware of inclusion. Inclusion probably isn't the right way of phrasing it, but certainly of diversity because they're in this wonderful uh, position where they can bring in a particularly diverse workforce, but they're also, they, they claim that they have to just get people through the door because they're growing and they haven't got time necessarily to think about that. So there's kind of an ab- abdication sometimes of that responsibility to a certain extent. Do you think that the sector could be doing more to, to help breed a more diverse, uh, and I suppose then therefore inclusive workforce? And I don't just mean women, but of course, all types of different minorities that, that are out there. Yeah, and I don't think this is unique to the tech sector. I think this is all businesses, right? I think that everybody has a challenge here. Everyone has a part to play in it. And for sure, you know, when we, we look at our clients, they're high growth businesses, they're running extremely lean. They need to get people in as quickly as possible. They in general have a problem with talent. So one lens of looking at that is actually they just have to take the people where 
if you're looking for developers, it probably tends to be male dominated. So you probably have more of a chance of getting a male through the door than a female. However, your other lens of looking at it is that if you're deliberately or accidentally excluding uh, based on gender or other measures of diversity, you're actually limiting the talent pool. Mm. So our view at, at Silicon Valley Bank, and I think this is increasingly something which is shared in the market across companies, investors, and other service providers, is that it's not a pipeline problem. I think the talent exists for sure. And I think it's more about uh, being thoughtful about how you hire, being thoughtful about training, being outside of this and much bigger you know, pieces around you know, education and STEM in particular in schools and making sure that you're building a diverse base. But you know, if you look hard enough, you can get a talent pool which is diverse, absolutely. Um, I think it's probably easier sometimes to set default to, you know, let's just get a lot of you know, white males because that's the easiest thing to do. I think it starts with hiring. And I think you have to have targets as well. Mm. I think what gets measured gets done. And I think if you just, you know, say, well, we're gonna we're gonna support diversity, and that could be a really kind of woolly ethereal statement. But if you set goals internally, and if you have your values really aligned to having a diverse workforce, then that will tend to produce much better results than saying, well, we're just gonna really focus on diversity this year because it's you know an important thing and everybody should be doing it. But if you say actually we're gonna increase the number of females in exact positions by X percentage, mm. that drives much better results than the kind of woolly and ethereal. I mean, it's interesting to say it's not a pipeline problem. I guess from a global picture, like if you looked at the global picture, it's probably not a pipeline problem. There are countries that have really quite good balance, particularly when it comes to, to gender. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the case in the UK necessarily, which, you know, somewhat arrogantly I often think that the UK should be quite progressive, should be kind of quite a liberal democracy, and therefore there should be opportunities for women and people from different minorities to enter the workforce. But what do you think we can learn? If you look at it from a point of view of working for a business that does work in different markets, what learning could the UK take to apply to try and increase that that diversity across various different minorities? Yeah, I, I mean, if, I, I think for, you know, to start with, this isn't easy and I think everyone has mm. to kind of really think about this in a thoughtful way yeah, and it's absolutely. not just like you know, one day you can flick a switch and become a diverse organisation and obviously all the, the kind of metrics support that this is actually a positive commercial decision, mm. diversity, it's not just a nice thing to do, it has positive outcomes for business in so many different ways. So I think in terms of you know what the UK does different to anywhere else, um, I think the UK does, does an okay job. I think that uh, you know, if you look at people like Diversity VC, they came out of the UK. I think groups like Stonewall, um, Backstage Capital, which although is you know US based, you know they're doing their first cohort in the UK. All of these groups are you know trying to kind of change things, and I think that the sector, in particular the tech sector, is you know really embracing that. And I think also you know Warren Buffett has a really good kind of like I'll paraphrase him. But he has a really good way of looking at diversity that, you know, the positive way of, look, of looking at it is that, you know, for a long period of time, we've been underutilizing our most important resource, which is our people. Um, so even if you just base it on gender, if as a species, we've only really been utilizing 50% of that talent pool. Mm. Imagine what we could do if we utilize 100% of it. So where people say it's a problem with the, the pipeline, the problem is they're looking maybe quite a myopic way where... They're not looking outside the norms. They're hiring people like themselves. 
but actually if you kind of broaden that there are pools of talent out there which can fulfill diversity and be incredible hires so you know for us as an organization you know if you look at you know commercial bankers in london the vast majority of them would probably look like me Mm. Um, but actually if you look well actually what are the characteristics of what makes a successful commercial banker do you need to only hire people from other commercial banks or are there other sources that you can use? Yes. And I think that has been, you know, a really important driver for our business in terms of building up, particularly on a gender basis. I think we're at sort of 42% female, which is actually decreased slightly, which definitely we need to look at. But overall versus kind of the, the banking landscape, we're doing a, a pretty decent job. We definitely have a long way to go on this, but I think it's not just focusing on the typical pools of talent that you're looking for fishing from the same pony you've always fished from, like broadening where you get that talent from, I think is really important. We mentioned your baritone voice at the beginning. It's probably slightly accentuated by the fact that you're from Bolton originally, from yeah. the Northwest. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that bedrock of the tech sector. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, joking aside, when we think about broadening that, that talent pool, you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, about that network and international expansion. Is there a whole pool of talent closer to home that we're just overlooking? Uh, I, th- I think so, yeah. I mean, like, you know, myself and lots of the people, you know, you finished university kind of 15 years ago, 16 years ago, and it was a very natural thing was to move to London. It was mm. like, all the jobs are in London, you kind of have to move to London. And I think now, you know, you're seeing pools of talent and companies, you know, outside of London and places like, you know, Edinburgh, Manchester, Bristol, that are producing like really top, top, tech companies, you know, some of them are getting, you know, big investments from the top US investors. And if you look at, you know, the quality of life, London is a great place to live and I absolutely love it here. Um, But if you look at the quality of life that you could have on a developer's salary in Bristol versus what it is in London, you get a better, I think everyone would agree, you get a better quality of life. What I find interesting though is that you've got these companies undoubtedly that are doing great work in some of the regional cities, Leeds in particular has had a I mean, I know everyone talks about Manchester, but there's been some some great case studies for these recently with Skybet and the likes of Channel 4 relocating there. And then you look at the universities that are producing the best developers potentially within the UK. They tend to be, you know, Manchester University gets cited, Queen's yeah. Belfast gets cited. But do those cities do enough to shout about what there is available to those students? Because they're creating the talent, but the talent still seems to head for London. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question. So I think that in general, there's kind of one thing that Northerners are, and I say this as a Northerner, are probably more guilty of than, than people from, you know, within the M25, is that they, they're not very good at shouting about themselves and about what they're doing. They're maybe a bit more kind of heads down and, you know, just get on with it, which is why if you look at Manchester, there's an awful lot of bootstrap companies that have suddenly doing kind of 10 million ARR. No one's ever heard of them. They've never taken a cent of outside equity. They've built like an incredible business. Um, I think that, you know, you mentioned about universities and, you know, Edinburgh is producing, you know, some top AI talent for sure. Manchester has always been strong from a technical basis. So I think trying to keep those guys closer to home is probably better for a more overall balanced economy. But, you know, if you look at the big tech companies in the country and the big US tech companies that are here, so Google, etc., they do tend to be in London. Mm. And that is a tough, like if you're fresh out of university and you get offered a job at Google and it's a choice of moving down to London to get that experience versus working for a startup in, you know, Manchester or anywhere else, 
it is it is difficult um i think it's getting better i think that the more headlines we get around successful companies in these regions like success breeds success and also i think people like london is a very very expensive place to live and isn't getting any cheaper and i think but particularly you know as people get later on in life and you know start to settle down and that kind of stuff i think that maybe the idea of moving out of london is actually a positive thing um and also the cost of you know hiring in london is some in some ways quite prohibitive mm. um, nowhere near as competitive as in, in the bay area by the way and i think people forget that sometimes but it, it is you know extremely competitive in london so I think having uh, you know a company that sets up in Manchester could hire ten developers for a, you know a significantly reduced cost of what a London company would do. So I think there's pushes and pulls in both directions. Uh, the UK, wrongly or rightly, in general, is a pretty kind of London centric uh, country. Uh, if you look at Germany, it's far more disparate. It's split across a number of cities. The US is actually the same, whereas the tech sector is concentrated in San Francisco. And the Bay Area in general, you know, the financial center is New York. If you're looking at, you know, media, it's going to be um, LA. If it's a music business, it's going to be, you know, Austin or, you know, anywhere else. If it's, uh, you know, biopharma, life sciences, you know, Boston is probably the place to go. So it is a bit more disparate, whereas in general in the UK, everything tends to be quite London centric. So just coming back to an earlier point and last question, you talked to the about the fact that you as a business work with venture capital firms. The dreaded B word, one of the plus points about venture capitalist investment in London is that it's so strong they're kind of committed to London regardless of whatever may mm. or may not happen. And, and and investment in London is higher than the combined investment in the whole of Germany or, or, the, or the whole of France. But are VCs beginning to look at regional UK areas have you seen some trends there that are quite encouraging to suggest that funding's going to the rest of the country rather than just the capital yeah I've, I think um, you know Tim Draper put out a tweet last week where he said you know that actually you know European landscape for investors is you know going to be really hot over the next few years because if you're looking at the me- all the metrics it supports that actually you know Europe is punching above its weight and look at the tech IPO Spotify etc so we're actually seeing U.S. investors interested in Europe, right. and if it's, if you're a U.S. investor interested in Europe, you know the language where all the venture dollars are going currently in Europe on a proportionate basis. You're probably going to be more interested in the U.K. than any other market. So we're definitely seeing that. So we're seeing U.S. investors coming to the U.K. actively looking for for deal flow because it is ultra competitive. Um, I, I think that in the U.K. Um, we've seen a lot of investors raise an awful lot of money over the last few years. Mm. So there's an awful lot of dry, dry powder out there. So that is positive in the sense that they're going to continue to invest that money. Their LPs will not say, sit on your hands and take your management fee. They're going to want them to de- deploy that capital. In answer to the regional piece, I think investors really do want to do more outside of London. Um, every single investor that's coming to us and is asking about interesting companies they're asking about what's happening outside London. They're very well networked in the London ecosystem. They see all the accelerators. They see most of the deal flow here for sure. I think where they have some blind spots is outside of London. So I think there's definitely appetite. Um, and I think the companies are definitely there as well. I think the challenge is that um, even though the UK is you know pretty small geographically, it can be a day out of you know a VC's life to go up to Edinburgh for one meeting they're probably not going to do that. Um, so there has to be some reason for them to be there, and that could be 
events and we've hosted dinners in these places and we invite companies to kind of meet with mm. a VC so it's kind of more scalable for the, for the investor. Um, but I also think there is, I, I think if you're a company in Manchester, getting on the train down to London to meet you know, a VC or a bunch of VCs doesn't necessarily mean you have to relocate your company here. It just means you have to do the meeting game with the investor to, to build up that um, you know, excitement about your business and eventually someone will you know, to write a check for you. Um, so I've, I think there's definitely appetite from the VCs. It just has to work for them from a scale perspective. And you know, we're trying to help with that. And I think companies themselves can help with that. Um, but I also think there's nothing wrong to say, actually some of the companies come down to London, meet the investors, get the investment. It doesn't mean you have to leave the regional hub because actually there's lots of really good economic reasons to stay based in Edinburgh, to stay based in Manchester, to stay based in Bristol. Look, Tom, I really appreciate your time and taking some time out to have a chat with us. At the beginning, you mentioned if you're a founder with £10,000 worth of savings, this is probably not the right business for you, but looking at your early stage practice, what kind of person would you think might pick up the phone and get in touch with SVB? Yeah, so I mean, any company which is kind of on that path of looking as I've raised some initial capital, yeah. has commercial traction, you know, is needing more than just banking. Like banking is increasingly commoditized. There's lots of challenger banks out there. And if you just need a bank account, and that is all you need, there's lots of places to open a bank account. I mean, if you're looking for a bank which understands what you're doing, appreciates the journey that you're on, and can actually add some value beyond that transactional banking, then come speak to us for sure. Well, look, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Pipeline problem. I found this interesting because so many times we've spoken about the fact that there's a pipeline problem in tech, and Tom came straight out there and said, there's not a pipeline problem. And I actually think this has more to do with your definition of pipeline. Yep. Do you agree yeah. with me? This I'm is good. No, I'm kind of agreeing with Tom. Right. Uh, there are, and he says it a lot, there are the pools of talent out there. It's just about, are you fishing in that right pool, so to speak? Or nurturing them. Exactly. Are you giving them the training? Are you, uh, are you fostering an environment where they're going to want to stay and things like that? If so, are they involved in meetup groups yeah. and things like that? I mean, he makes the point that there, there's 50% of, of resources in terms of women yeah. that basically, you know, huge pools of talent out there that we're not tapping into. Not just women, there are minority groups as well. Absolutely. Very poorly represented in the yeah. industry. And the industry basically needs to do more. What, yeah. what he's saying is the, pi the pipeline problem only exists because we've not been responsible in nurturing uh, the hiring process and training schemes to actually make sure that those talent pools are have a bridge yeah, into I mean, industry. Foster your own talent pools, guys. I mean, Morton Spinks, um, as part of the Harvey Nash Group, run their own New Equal Tech event once a month. And that is a community now, and that is so rich with amazing, diverse talent that you know it's part of their ecosystem they're yeah. going to trust Morton Spinks as a recruiter now you know I, I would argue that that still suggests pipeline problem because the talent sure. is there it's just getting it into the industry that yeah, remains so the, the, the critical point of failure the funnel is the issue here yes. right yeah how you input and output yeah. your talent and get them on board sort of thing I guess yeah um, I just wanted to pick up on a point that, that Tom made about diversity that naturally I would wholeheartedly disagree with but he makes a very good point and it was the point that uh, what gets measured gets done and if diversity is measured it will be achieved now I don't necessarily agree with that I don't think it should be something that we look to measure but when you do assign it and attribute it to more senior roles in your business say for example we aim to have 50% uh, of our a senior management team or women 
then by hook or by crook, you're going to have to have a diverse team eventually because you're going to have to meet that target. Now, maybe having a target is the wrong way of doing it, but if it's going to ensure that you get there... I know what you're you saying, but, but we've, we've argued many times, and he makes this point, that diversity, if it's a positive commercial decision... Which it is. If you make it a commercial decision, yep. Yep. It, has much, it holds much more water. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if it's a commercial decision, yeah. then numbers and stats will enter that conversation. And your board will be more bought into it as there's a, it's a commercial, you know? So yeah. I totally yeah. am on board yeah. with what he's yeah. saying. It's changed my mind, definitely. Um, I, I also uh, found it fascinating that he described the UK as doing okay. Okay is not okay. a, it's not a, uh, it's not a ringing endorsement, is it? But we are just doing okay. Like we're not doing, we're not, where's our decacorns and our dodecaunicorns, you know? Until we, you know, from that point of view, we are doing okay. No, I, I, London I think- London is doing very well. I think, I think he's referring there to, to, to the diversity challenge, right. but equally, equally, the UK has produced some unicorns but yes yeah. it's not produced an absolute huge tech giant yeah. and he does go on to talk about diversity VC yeah. Yeah. being yeah. one of the shining lights in mm. that diversity piece mm. and linking it to the VC community and you know he, he pays reference to Stonewall yes um, but yeah it's, it sounds listening to his narrative that we are still very reliant on US money yeah and I think I mean, it's it, it, it's odd, it's peculiar, but it's kind of the way it is at the moment, you know, because they're coming from such a heavily funded background anyway. You know, all the money is being made in tech in America predominantly. It's not, and then we source innovation, we become innovative, but we don't have that that tech uh, economy here yet. You know, we don't have an Apple, we don't have an Amazon. None, none of that was born in the UK either, so it makes it harder for that tech ecosystem to be as big in UK and Europe as it is in America. And let's be honest, let's, let's not dodge Brexit for a minute, right? The B word. The B word. Um, US commitment to London is because Europe is seen as a leading spotlight for tech, and that's down to Spotify and yeah. companies like that, which aren't based in the UK, right? There was, there was a really good point Tom made, though, and it... But it, the language piece is important. Sorry, exactly what, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. And it, it doesn't paint VCs as being these lazy people who don't want to go up to Manchester because they don't want to waste half a day. And it doesn't paint VCs as, like, being arrogant enough to only want to speak English. But the language piece is incredibly important. Communication is. And I think it... it, it Again, it reinforces that London is this bridge. Mm. Not only is it a bridge to the rest of Europe, mm. but it's a bridge to the rest of the UK. But yeah. it's such a strategically important place mm. um, in terms of its geographical position in the world and the fact that people speak English. It's five, six hours from New York. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, and that's critical. Yeah. And we are risking that by cutting some ties with Europe. Yeah. But... Hopefully, language and the level of commitment that VCs have made means that they are, they are, they're all in for they're at least the next few years. Do you see a certain sense of irony, maybe, in the fact that this could all be done via something like Zoom or you know a platform where you can do face-to-face meetings anywhere in the world? But the fact that they still want to come over and do it all face-to-face in the old-fashioned way. I mean, I guess there's so much money at stake that you wouldn't want to risk it via a Skype conversation, let's say. But I interviewed for my last job and two out of the three of the interviews were with people sitting in Austin. Yeah, but no offence, Jack. Like, no, if someone's all offence. If someone is hiring you no, or I me, no, no, the no. level of investment 
<laughs> uh, needed for us to uh, is not quite the same. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I do love the point though that he makes that investors want to do more outside of London, but they've got blind spots. But how important events are then? Because a VC is not going to get on a train to go and see one company in Edinburgh. Yep. The emphasis has unfortunately got to be on the company in Edinburgh or London to come down to, to see the VC from Manchester or Edinburgh rather to come to London. Um, but events and you know companies like SVB can run events and mm -hmm. that can help kind of get rid of those blind spots and, and enable a bit more investment in the wider UK. I mean, it's, it's again, it harks back to that pipeline point, you know, the fostering the environment. If you can foster an environment whereby VCs want to come to an event that you're going to host or want to come to a co-branded event that you're partnering with someone else with, that's powerful. You know, mm. you want to, and you should be willing to meet them in London, I think, you know, they've come all this way from the States or whatever, then I think there needs to be a bit of give. But if you can get them up there for something cool, then you've got them there sort of thing. I, yeah. I think the overarching word for this interview to me is, is access. Because he describes their main challenge, their, sorry, when I say their main challenge, His I mean clients. their clients, yeah, yeah. being access to talent. But yeah. as you listen to him, it's not just access to talent, it's access to help, to resources, to funding. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's an obvious statement to make, but there is such a powerful role for organisations that can still bring those various constituent parts together yep. and the health of the tech sector is reliant upon those being open and free-flowing yeah and you know that b word there anything that throws up a challenge to how those those um means of, of support flow is a problem yeah absolutely um i mean <clears throat> we've, we're, we're seeing the importance of divulging power to local uh, local cities and, uh, and districts, you know, with, with, with mayors and such, and we kind of are more open to that ideology that we should divulge more power locally, but we still need to be open and we still need to be communicating between cities and things like that. And I think London is never going to do any other city any favours. So it goes to Tom's point, you know, these cities need to be shouting more, Manchester needs to be shouting more, Leeds needs to be shouting more, because there's great tech dev talent there or whatever kind of talent there. But they need to be, yeah, it just needs to be louder coming out. I think with that, we'll listen to this fabulous song for a moment, go to our break, and uh, be back with you in a second. Tech Talks are partnering with Alive and Kicking, a charity that set up businesses that manufacture beautiful sports balls across sub Saharan Africa. Using profits from ball sales and additional fundraising from events like the Hackney Half Marathon, they're able to train sports coaches to deliver vital health education. We're about to hear from Naomi, a coach in Zambia, who's been trained to deliver mental health education to her community. Hello there, this is Coach Naomi from Zambia. I would love to say with Alive and Kicking training, which has helped me to teach my players about like mental health. It has really built my knowledge and they have passed through to my young players in, in the community. I also work with Special Olympics where we deal with children with disability, mentally and physically. I hope and trust that the Alive and Kicking will continue teaching coaches in various parts of the world, not just in Zambia. Thank you very much, Alive and Kicking. Welcome back to Tech Talks. It is time for the news. I haven't said that for a while, actually. I kind of stopped saying it's time for the news. Yeah, I know, because you got rid of the uh, jingle, jingle, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, just a short, snappy one. Um, 
Google will require temp workers to receive $15 minimum wage and parental leave. Um, of course, this is off the back of a protest or something nasty, but they've reacted, which I guess is good. Um, they've said today that it requires extended non-employee workforce in the States to receive comprehensive health care coverage, $15, mil uh, oh God, $15 minimum wage and 12 weeks of parental leave. And I guess this is just, you know, Google must have a huge contract to book and they don't feel like they're being appreciated by their employer. And when you're a company like Google who has so much contractor resource, they are part of your family. You need to treat them as that. And although this is a step in the right direction, it's not quite a big enough step I would have thought. It's interesting because obviously Tom mentions mm. Google in the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said that, you know, um, if you have an exciting opportunity with a startup in Manchester or Google come calling, you go to Google. You still and, do, yeah. And that's the problem with all of these issues with around, you know, yeah. Google's... Are the, are the big tech companies opaque about how they pay people, about how they bonus people, about issues like this? Mm. They can kind of get away with murder to a certain degree. Well, you can have a year on your CV at Google and you'll walk into any other job kind of thing, you know? It's, that's the way it is at the moment. And I think Google are... That is a step in the right direction, but it's very reactive. It's of and I think of nastiness. So. Even if you wouldn't envisage that Google are the place for you um, forever yeah. in your career, you still do 18 months there because it, it does give you that platform. It's a great key. It's a great key to open more doors. Yeah. Just like, you know, featuring on Tech Talks if you're a founder. <laughs> what, founder of Google? No, we haven't had him on. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the founder of Google? Larry, um, what's his face? We should really know that we being a tech, tech that. podcast. Yeah. Oh dear. Um, yeah, okay, so so we're basically saying Larry. Google should do better. Yes, uh, but it's a step in the right direction. We don't want to you know, we don't want to chastise them too much, but it's a step in the right direction, but do more. Do, do more. more. You've got so much fucking money. Do more for your start. Well, do more for, for the planet when you've got that much and money. That, yeah, yeah, while you're there. Okay, uh, I've got something from TNW. Hello. Hello. Face-to-face uh, -face interaction shouldn't be replaced by digital communication. You were saying that investors could do meetings via Zoom. I did. This is saying, you know what, let's not replace looking at the whites of someone's eyes. My point was it's rather ironic that tech giants, rather than using a tech platform, will travel 6,000 miles across the Atlantic. That was right. my point. Irony. Yep. No, but yeah, okay, please proceed. So obviously it's going on... You know, context setting, mm -hmm. FaceTime, Skype, WhatsApp. Yeah, we all know that we use those. Not only that, but virtual assistants such as Alexa, Cortana, Siri. Um, often these ways of communicating. Wasn't that the Xbox one? Yeah, it's Microsoft. Oh, God, that was awful. Sorry to butt in, but Cortana via the Xbox was terrible. Well, Siri's terrible. Siri is terrible. I can't say that too loudly because it will turn itself on. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Cortana. You, just, you, that's you don't want to turn Siri on. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> in these ways of communicating reduce the need to speak to another human being. Ain't that sad, right? <laughs> uh, this has led to some conversational snippets of our daily lives now taking place mainly via digital uh, technology devices. So we no longer need to talk to shop assistants, receptionists, bus drivers, even co-workers. Simply engage with a screen to communicate. Um, I was thinking about this. It ties into this whole piece that we've been talking about recently with um, with health tech. It made me think of when we had Zenzone on the show, yeah. right? Or, or when we were talking to Cancer Central. This idea that there are certain people in the in the in the population who are uncomfortable in engaging with people face to face. And there's an element I know that yeah, with yeah. Zenzone they were talking about adults being authority figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But youngsters are, are less comfortable with engaging in conversation. And is that you know 
we communicate with Ryder, bless him, he's only a kid. He is. He's a boy. <laughs> we, we, we communicate with him through WhatsApp all the time. But I think, and I, I think this is, like, I've tried to pin it on a generational issue before, and I do think it's more of a personal issue. I don't necessarily, I hate talking on the phone. I, I, I don't think it's a generational thing, yeah. but I think it's that this generation knows no different. Yeah. I'm yeah, sure yeah, if they hadn't yeah. been raised, it's not like. But we do, so that's my point. So they are products I, of their environment. Yeah. I hate talking on the phone. I like at work, my landline was never plugged in. My work mobile was in my bag. Message me, WhatsApp me, or whatever. But I don't like talking over the phone. Is it? It's just as bad FaceTiming, or as we call it, my family shout timing, because you have to scream into the phone. You talk over each other. It's a fucking nightmare. And I just think that. I think. Do you know what? Some I see a lot of people doing walking down the street, just sending each other voice notes now as well. So. What we via start, WhatsApp? Yeah, via WhatsApp. Maybe that's what we should start doing. Right. Yeah, well, I, I've had the odd conversation with someone yeah. like that, where that's what they've chosen to go for. But I mean, I, I mean, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day that you know, there's this sort of head and neck, like art attack kind of creature that is now replacing people in the interview process, and it can ask questions about bias and things like that. Which at first, I thought it was a really good idea. You know, you just you get asked, you're being interviewed by a robot. But jobs are about building rapport with colleagues. Exactly. That was my, you know, I then was like, but I still need human interaction. If I'm going for a new job, if I'm buying, renting a new house, if I'm buying, I don't know, actually, not buying everything. But yeah, the big decisions in life, you still need human interactions with, mm. I think, right? And if that is a job interview or something like that, I, I think it's important. I mean, the article points out, like, bus drivers. I just think that's common courtesy. Like... You don't have to physically ask the bus driver for a ticket anymore. You just scan your Oyster yeah. card if you're living in London. But it's still nice to say, Cheers, mate. thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just harder when you get off the back of the bus now to scream that, thanks, mate. People do, though. Yeah, no, people do. People and do. it's always heartening when they do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I say thanks as I get on. Uh, uh, usually grunted back, but, you know, it's bus drivers for it. Well, look, I think we'll leave it there. Um, have a lovely weekend, folks. Yes. If you're still listening to the show by this point. Yeah, well, I've never, we've never looked at the drop-offs, have we? The drop-off points of the show. I think, I think it's... We need to start leaving Easter everyone eggs Everyone is still listening. We need to leave Easter eggs in. Like, if you hear this, you're subject to getting all of Dave's data. I'll tell you what, if you're still listening, if you're still listening, ping me on Twitter this phrase. Jack went to see Captain Marvel. Send that to me on Twitter, and you will receive two free tickets to Unbound in July at the Truman's Brewery on behalf of Tech Talks. Wow, there you go. There we go. We'll see if that happens. Eh? I watched Dave think that out as he said it, <laughs> and it came out perfectly. Not planned at all, nope, no, but there we yeah. go. Do it, because Unbound is a great day out. There exactly. Go. So, um, yeah, there you go. We, I promise you, we will give you free tickets to Unbound. Yeah, if you... Jack went to see Captain Marvel. And tell you what, for a bonus point, you can add the hashtag on his own. Because no one else was in the I don't, I don't know what the bonus point would be, but... Bonus point, you might get a handshake from us on the day. Oh yeah, perfect. We'll be there. We'll be there. <laughs> but, Bob, Matt, have a lovely weekend. <laughs>